The scripture reading for today comes from Zechariah 8, verses 14 through 23. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another, and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, let us go at once and entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord, thus says the Lord of hosts. In those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. The word of God is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. You can be seated. And good morning again, and welcome to New Life Fremont. My name is Kevin, if I haven't had a chance to meet any of you yet. We are taking a couple weeks off of, of being in any specific sermon series, and for a couple Sundays we're just going to have one-off sermons, uh, gospel singles as we call them, sermons not associated with any one sermon series. And this week we're looking, as you just heard, at a passage from the book of Zechariah. Now, Zechariah is one of the minor prophets, and what's written in Zechariah coincides with what's referred to as the post-exilic history, uh, post-exilic period of Israel's history. Uh, the, the Old Testament historical books that go with this period are Ezra and Nehemiah, which were actually originally just one book written together as a whole. And they cover Israel's return from exile back to Israel and to Jerusalem. And they focus on some of the rebuilding that's going on in this period, the re- rebuilding of the temple or the rebuilding of the city walls. And uh, the other minor prophet that directly talks about this time is uh, Haggai also. So Zechariah and Haggai are our post-exilic prophets. And this can sometimes be a period of Israel's history that's less familiar to us. And so if you're feeling like you don't have any idea what happens in those books, I'll briefly recap where we are in Old Testament history so we can understand Zechariah's passage better. So uh, King David, if you're familiar, King David, that's a famous Old Testament character. At the end of King David's life, uh, he gives a bunch of resources and a bunch of money to build Israel's first temple. And uh, other leaders in Israel follow suit. They also give money and resources to building this temple. And eventually, everyone in the nation gives money to build the temple. And then David dies. He actually dies before the temple is built. But eventually, ultimately, uh, the temple is built during his son's reign, during King Solomon's reign. 
So Solomon builds the temple, and then after his reign ends, after he dies, things get kind of rough for the nation of Israel. The kingdom actually splits into two. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. A southern kingdom is called Judah. The temple is in Judah in Jerusalem. And then about 200 years after the nation split into two, the northern kingdom is defeated by Assyria, and they're carried off into exile. 150 years after that, Jerusalem, in the southern kingdom, is invaded and destroyed by Babylon, and the temple is actually destroyed in that invasion. And then the people of Babylon carry the Israelites off into exile in Babylon. And both of these exiles have uh, worldly causes, you know, Assyria and Babylon, but they're ultimately all under God's sovereign control, and he ordained that this would happen as a a punishment of sorts for the people's unfaithfulness, for their sinfulness. They turned their backs on God, and so he ordained that they would be exiled for a time. But less than a century into the exile, uh, the people are allowed to return home to Jerusalem, and they do, and they begin rebuilding the temple when they get back. But soon after they start rebuilding the temple, there are some obstacles, and the the work to rebuild it stops, and it remains stalled for more than a decade. So this is where Zechariah comes in. The prophet uh, Zechariah is writing to a people who are in the middle of a rebuilding project, but they haven't completed it yet. Does that sound like anyone we know? It's a lot like the season we're in as a church, like New Life. And the metaphor's loose, so don't draw too strong of connections, but I think it's fair to say that one way, in, in one way or another, we've experienced various forms of exile in the past several years, and we're in the middle of a rebuilding project. We're rebuilding church life after the pandemic kind of forced us to meet mostly online for the better part of a year. Uh, We're also about to begin a pastor search, which is a little bit of a rebuilding project, if you will. And we're in the middle of these projects. We haven't finished them yet. There's still work to do. So Zechariah was written to exhort people to press on, and maybe some of those exhortations to press on, to keep up the work we've started, to continue working in particular ways with a particular identity, with particular values, can relate to us as well in our current situation, in our day and age. So there's a lot that we can learn from God's message to his post-exilic people. He wants them to finish the rebuilding project, but that's not all he wants. That's just the start. That's just an external manifestation of something deeper and more profound that God wants to do in his post-exilic people. And so through Zechariah's message, uh, God is casting a vision for them, but he's also casting vision for us. He's giving the, them a purpose as his covenant people, but he's also giving us a purpose as his covenant people. The Lord has much more in store for us. He has a purpose for us and a future for us. So that's the background on Zechariah, and as we dive deeper into this passage, we'll have three points, ethics, feasting, and mission. And, you know, each of these could be followed up by of the people of God, the ethics of the people of God, the feasting of the people of God, and the mission of the people of God. And so let's start with our first point, the ethics 
of the people of God. We are to be a people with, with specific ethics as God's people. Now, the first thing you need to know about the ethics of God's people is that our ethics always come after God's actions, after the Lord's actions. It's divine action first and then human response. Grace before law, mercy before ethics. This is the pattern time and time again in the Lord's dealings with his people. You know, for example, the Lord brings his people out of Egypt before he gives them the Ten Commandments. And our passage is no different. Before the Lord even gets to what he wants his people to do, he reassures them by declaring what he will do. Look at verses 14 and 15. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. Before the Lord tells his people what they should do, he wants them to know what he will do, and he says he will surely bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And it's no different for us. Our ethics as the people of God, as the church, must first and foremost be a response to God's graciousness. That's why you were just assured of God's grace toward you before the sermon. Any ethic built on a foundation besides the graciousness of God will ultimately fail. It all rests on God's grace. Now, what exactly are the ethics for God's people? Uh, What does God say his people should do in this passage? If we pick it back up in verses 16 and 17, Therefore, these are the things you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. Essentially, what the Lord says to the people is pretty simple. They should, one, be a people of truth, and two, be a people of peace. People of truth and people of peace. And if you were to glance briefly at the end of verse 19, it actually says that they should love truth and peace. And this is an example of what's called a positive ethic. Uh, Do you see that? Do you see how this is a positive ethic? A lot of times, you know, Christianity might seem to boil down to a list of prohibitions, negative ethics. You shall not do this. You shall not do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. And we may be left wondering, okay, you know, I know what Christianity is against, but what is Christianity for? Well, here you have it. A positive ethic. What is Christianity for? Christianity is for truth. Christianity is for peace. Christians actually ought to love truth and love peace. That's the positive ethic. Love truth. Love peace. But do we? Do we actually love peace? truth, and peace. I mean, on paper, I'm sure we would all say that we're for truth, that we're for peace, but day to day, is your life characterized by a love of truth, by a love of peace? Let's talk about truth for a minute. The passage mentions speaking the truth to one another and rendering judgments that are true. 
do we do that? Do we, do we speak the truth to one another? Or do we keep the truth to ourselves? Or worse, do we speak lies? You know, in this day and age and in this country and culture, I think dishonesty is actually something of an epidemic. Everyone seems to lie all the time and not feel bad at all about it. Or at the very least, they feel very comfortable distorting the truth. You know, one example might be uh, people taking this principle from the court system, you know, innocent until proven guilty, which is a principle that was designed to protect the weak and vulnerable from oppression, but has sort of been distorted into a dishonest form of just self-preservation, where people essentially just lie until it can be proven that they're lying. Think about, you know, I used this example before, Lance Armstrong or any major league baseball player who essentially just lied repeatedly about not using steroids until one day it was proven that they were using steroids and they said, oh yeah, sorry, I was just lying the whole time. And that's kind of the norm. We kind of, we're kind of used to that happening, right? And I'm worried that even as Christians, we are a little too comfortable with that happening in, you know, in the world around us, but maybe even also in our own lives. We're a little too comfortable sometimes with blatant dishonesty. I I worry we might use innocent until proven guilty as a shield to justify our own dishonesty, our own withholding of the truth. But that's not the way that the people of God are meant to live. We're to speak the truth to one another. We don't hide behind the principle of innocent until proven guilty. We don't just lie until someone can prove we're lying. We speak the truth to one another. Now, maybe some of you aren't guilty of that sort of bald face lying, but I think many of us are probably guilty of at least keeping the truth to ourselves, saying, saying nothing, essentially. Or, or maybe when we do speak, telling just partial truths. And that's what makes this positive ethic so brilliant. You know, a command that simply said, do not lie, leaves the door open to staying quiet about what's true or only saying half of the truth. Because you can always te- say, technically, I didn't lie. But here God says to love the truth. Love it. And so keeping quiet about what's true or telling just a partial truth clearly does not rise to the level of loving the truth. And the people of God are to love the truth. Now, why do we do that? Why are we tempted to hide what's true? Why are we tempted to tell just partial truths? You know, I'm sure there's many, many reasons, but a couple that stick out to me are control and fear. You know, we want to control circumstances. We want to control the narrative. We want to control reality. And we're afraid of what might happen if we don't. But the reality is that God is actually in control, and he already knows everything. No amount of curating or deception can trick God into believing falsehoods, which, if you really think about it, frees you up to tell the truth to ourselves, to one another, and to God. And, you know, for those of us who are tempted to avoid the truth because of fear, this passage in Zechariah tells us that he intends to do good to his people, and so we don't need to live in fear. He's already done good to us. He's sent his son. You know, that's truth embodied, truth personalized. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And he sent his spirit to dwell within us, the spirit of truth. 
You know, God has already been good to us, and so we don't have to grab for control. We don't have to live in fear. God has intended to do good to his people, and he has done good to his people. And so we can love the truth. Now, that's truth. But we are also called to love peace. And so do we love peace? Do you love peace? And of course, the word being used here for peace is actually shalom, uh, if you've heard that word before. And shalom has a much fuller and complete meaning than the way we tend to use the word peace. And so, you know, we may think of peace as the moment at the end of a long day when the kids have just gone to bed and we can sit back on the couch with a bowl of ice cream and watch Netflix or something. But the house is still a mess. The sink is full of dirty dishes. There's still laundry in the dryer that you're going to have to restart in the morning to fluff it up. So even though the house isn't getting worse, it's still in a state of incompleteness. That's not true peace. That's not shalom. Shalom would be sitting down on the couch with that bowl of ice cream knowing that all the dishes are cleaned and put away. All your laundry is folded and in closets and in dressers, and there's nothing else more that needs to be done. That's shalom. Or imagine you have a conflict with someone. You know, you get into an argument, you offend one another, you hurt each other's feelings. You might be tempted to think that uh, peace is when the argument ends. Or you might be tempted to think that peace is never talking about the issue again. Uh, You might think that peace is not rocking the boat. Just let things be peaceful. But that's not peace. That's not shalom. That's, there's still unfinished business. There's still unfinished work that needs to be done relationally. Shalom would be taking the risk of bringing up the issue again so that you can work out an understanding, so that you can apologize, so that you can forgive, so that you can be reconciled and restore the relationship to where things were before. And weirdly enough, I've actually found in these situations that if you were to actually pursue this kind of shalom, things don't return to where they were before. They get better, right? Have you ever experienced that? How resolving a conflict with someone actually made that relationship stronger than before the conflict happened? That's peace. That's shalom. It's more than just this neutral static state. Shalom implies a dynamic flourishing. And so as the people of God, we are to love shalom. We are to love what brings about shalom, and we're to hate what destroys shalom. And so you always have to be asking yourself, do I truly love shalom? Let's consider one area of life where I think many of us might struggle to truly love shalom, reality TV. I'm not going to you know, pick on any one show because the point here is not to shame those of you who watch this show and not another, but to help us critically self-examine why we watch what we watch and whether we actually love shalom. And so what types of reality TV shows are you drawn to? Do they promote shalom? Or do they depend on the destruction of shalom? You know, obviously there are many types, but we could kind of break them down into two subgenres, at least that stick out to me. And so on the one hand, there are shows that are about building up something or blessing others. You know, one example that comes to my mind, I don't actually know if the show is still on, but extreme house makeover type shows. You know, family is down on their luck, and yet at the end of the episode, there's this climactic moment where buses move out of the way to reveal a completely new house. You know, completion, blessing, shalom. 
you know, these types of shows seem to entertain us and draw us in because we're seeing shalom. But on the other hand, there's a genre of reality show that's completely dependent on the destruction of shalom. They depend on the drama and often unresolved conflict created by real people. Not actors, but real people with bodies and souls and flesh and blood and an eternal destiny who are debasing themselves for our entertainment. You know, I probably don't even need to list examples of shows because you already know what shows fit this subgenre. There are shows that are only entertaining because of the destruction of Shalom. But as the people of God, we need to love Shalom for ourselves, for others, and even for reality TV contestants. If we find ourselves you know, taking delight or finding entertainment in the destruction of Shalom, then we can't truly say we love it. Because again, it's a positive ethic. It's not just you shall not destroy Shalom, because then you could say, well, technically, I'm not the one on the show destroying it. But it's a positive ethic. Love, peace. Love, shalom. Remember, God has purpose to bring about good, to bring about shalom for his people. We are a people who have been lifted out of spiritual poverty and who for no reason other than the grace of God have seen the buses move out of the way to reveal the household of God in which we now belong. And so for all the good that God has done for his people, we therefore ought to be a people who love truth and love shalom. Truth and peace, two of the most fundamental ethics of the people of God. But of course, belonging in the people of God isn't just about ethics. Uh, It's not less than ethics, but it's certainly more. And that takes us to our second point, the feasting of God's people. Now, just a little background on why this topic even comes up in our passage. Uh, One chapter earlier in Zechariah, Zechariah 7, the people sent messengers to ask the Lord if they should continue to weep and fast in the fifth month, as they had been doing for so many years. And the fifth month was the month that the city of Jerusalem had fallen, you know, invaded, destroyed, temple destroyed. That was the fifth month. And so many people, you know, the remaining people were carried off to Babylon to live in exile, And what the people did during exile, during the fifth month of each year, was they fasted. They were mourning the loss of their home. And this fast was essentially a liturgy of mourning. And because the city fell as a result of the people's unfaithfulness, it was also a liturgy of failure, a liturgy of shame. You get what I mean when I say a liturgy of failure, a, a liturgy of shame? You know, like, like we shape the liturgy of our worship service, what's in your worship booklet, to be a retelling of the gospel, a liturgy of grace, a liturgy of joy that we practice every week so it sinks in and reminds us of God's kindness toward us. We want to be formed and embody grace and joy through our liturgy. People in Zechariah's day shaped their liturgy to be a retelling of their failure. It was a liturgy of sadness, a liturgy of shame and guilt. And so the people in Zechariah's day shaped, or the people in Zechariah's day uh, wrote in chapter 7, you know, now that we've been brought back from exile and we're rebuilding the temple, should we continue that fast in the fifth month? Should we keep rehearsing this liturgy of failure? What does God say? No. No more fasting. No more mourning. No more rehearsing the liturgy of failure that you have as a people. And not only will you not fast in the fifth month, you're not going to fast in the fourth month, you're not going to fast in the seventh month, you're not going to fast in the tenth month either. 
You see, all these fasts were mourning terrible events that had happened in Jerusalem. The assassination of one of their rulers, the beginning of the siege against the city, the breaching of the walls of the city, and then ultimately its destruction. But now the Lord says to his people, those fasts, those seasons of mourning, they're over. And not only are they over, they're being replaced. The Lord says, you're not going to have fasts in these months anymore. You're going to have seasons of joy and gladness. You're going to have cheerful feasts. You know, look, for us, the the previous month intentionally was uh, lamenting what had happened in the past year for us as a church. And God's people, before this passage, fasted and mourned for a time in exile. That's good and right, to fast and mourn for a time, so long as it's only for a time. Eventually, God calls his people out of fasting, out of mourning to joy and feasting. You see, the redeemed people of God are a people of feasting. We're not a people of mourning. We are a people of joy. We're not a people of fasting. We're a people of feasting. Christ came to deliver you from your sin and failure. Christ came to deliver you from your fasting and mourning. If you're in Christ, then you belong to a body of people whose past failures have been wiped away. A people whose tears will one day day be wiped away. The chains that used to bind us are gone. The punishment that we deserved has been taken off the table. The pain that depresses us will be no more one day. And instead, we've been invited into the household of God where we will enjoy the benefits of being his children. And so we don't have to practice a liturgy that commemorates our failure or pain anymore. We practice a liturgy that celebrates our joy and salvation. I suspect, though, that for some of us, maybe even many of us, we're a little bit uncomfortable with the idea of feasting. You know, lots of questions arise for us when we think about feasting. You know, isn't feasting just gluttony? Isn't there a high chance of wastefulness when we feast? Is, is feasting really economical? Do we even deserve to feast? Is it okay that Pastor Kevin offered me a cocktail menu when I was at his house? Is it really okay for us to feast, to celebrate, to have joy? Well, what does scripture have to say about feasting? A lot, actually. Feasting is all over scripture. Let's start at the very beginning. Genesis 2, God gives Adam and Eve every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. In Exodus 24, the Lord welcomes the elders of Israel up onto the mountain with him, and what do they do? They eat and drink together. In the New Testament, Jesus compares the coming kingdom to a wedding feast, and the sad reality is that it's a feast that he can't find anyone to come to. In Matthew 11, Jesus says that people accuse him of being a glutton and a drunkard because he feasts on good food and drinks good drink. In John 2, he turns water into wine at a wedding feast because it would be shameful if they ran out of wine, if they didn't have enough wine to celebrate. He feeds the 5,000, and at the end, there's food left over. Before his death, he institutes a meal, the Lord's Supper, which is like a foretaste of what's to come. And what's to come? Revelation 19, the marriage feast of the Lamb, where the feasting of God's people is fully realized as Christ's bride, the church, united with her groom. 
from all over scripture, we see that something is wrong if you never celebrate with the people of God. If you belong to the people of God, then don't let your pride, don't let your self-righteousness, don't let your shame, don't let your thriftiness stop you from experiencing feasting. You know, the temptation would be to say, we could be doing so much better. We don't really deserve to feast right now. And so then you just never feast. But what does the Lord say to you? The Lord says, yeah, you do fall short. You don't really deserve a feast, but I want to give you one anyway because I love you. You, don't, you belong to me and I love you and your feasting doesn't depend on your good works. It depends on me and my graciousness and I want to lavish my grace upon you. And it's actually as a result of being a people who feast in the Lord that will be transformed. If you look at the end of verse 19, the Lord has just said that all the fasts are going to become feasts. And then he concludes, therefore, love, truth, and peace. It's those ethics of the people of God again. And you see what the Lord is saying? The same pattern as before. The Lord is gracious. He turns fasting into feasting, and the people will naturally respond by loving truth and peace, grace before ethics, because the Lord is transforming our fasts into feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Loving truth and peace should flow naturally from a people who are experience God's grace, who are experiencing God's feasting. And if you find yourself not loving truth and peace, maybe it's because you haven't feasted with the Lord and his people. Maybe you haven't tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And so feast, literally and metaphorically. Participate in weekly worship, which culminates in a feast, the Lord's Supper. Fellowship with one another over good food and drink. Mark the seasons and occasions of the year with celebratory gatherings. Grow in hospitality, have fun, laugh, create environments to enjoy God and one another. The people of God are a people who feast together. And so the picture being painted of God's people is a unique one. You know, on the one hand, we're a people committed to certain ethics which you might expect makes us strict and stiff rule followers. But on the other hand, we're a people that feast and celebrate. We have fun. And so it's with this unique blend of values for ethics, for feasting, for truth and peace, for joy, for celebration, that we as the people of God are sent into the world with a mission, a people with a unique combination of values, with a unique mission. That brings us to our third point, the mission of the people of God. In uh, verses 20 through 23, Zechariah prophesies about what the future holds for the people of God. And it's a stunning description. Despite Jerusalem's current state, you know, they haven't rebuilt anything yet. God says this, Peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities, The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of the hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts. And I love this last verse. In those days, ten men from from every nation, from, from the nations of every tongue, shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you. For we have heard that God is with you. Let us go with you. For we have heard that God is with you. People from every nation, from every tongue, seeking the Lord and inviting others to join them too. 
You know, it's the same vision that the Lord gave Abraham in Genesis 12. I'll make you a great nation so that you will be a blessing, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's the same vision that Jesus gave the apostles in Acts 1. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And it's the same vision that the apostle John left us with our future from Revelation 12. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and nations, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation belongs to our God, not your God, not the God of Israel, our God, people from all nations calling the Lord their God. So what does this have to do with you? What does this have to do with us? For starters, you know, we're the end of the earth, so to speak, from that Acts 1 passage. We're the families of the earth blessed through Abraham's offspring. We're part of the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy that people from other nations would take a hold of the robe of a Jew to go where God is. You know, over thousands of years, Christians have believed that this vision of the future would come true, that it was actually going to happen, and they've brought people from other nations into the people of God. We're part of that fulfillment. But so how do we, as New Life, then take up the baton and continue that mission? Lots of ways, but here's a couple main ways. You know, the first is by supporting global and domestic ministries and missionaries. You know, people doing work that we couldn't do. People working in places that we couldn't go. And we do this. We support several missionaries and ministries overseas financially. Or, or another way that we do, we do this. Now, I don't know if you, you all know, I serve on our Presbytery's Credentials and Candidates Committee, which has influence in Northern California, Utah, and Hawaii. And, you know, even though I pastor this church, I work for this church, you pay me. Part of my work goes beyond the walls of this church and the greater Presbytery region. And so what we do is we examine young men who think they might be called to the ministry. We, we care for them. We design internships for them. We have examinations that they have to pass before they can preach or be ordained as a pastor. And, you know, a lot of what we do is ensure that they're qualified. But once they're qualified, what we want them to do is get to their mission field and preach the gospel. And so maybe you didn't know this, but you're actually already supporting ministries and missionaries outside the walls of this church who do work that we could never do ourselves. So that's one way that we continue the mission. But the second way that we participate in the mission to reach the entire world is by faithful presence right here in Fremont, the Tri-Cities, this corner of the Bay Area, whatever you want to call it, faithful presence you need to be faithful. You need to be present where God has called you. Let me, let me be the first to admit, faithful presence is incredibly hard, especially in a post-Christian, post-modern, post-everything culture like the Bay Area. And what makes it tough for us to reach out and have an impact in the communities that God has placed us in uh, are a couple, a couple reasons. It depends on, you know, maybe where you're at. For some of you, you might struggle with the faithful part of faithful presence. You know, you're maybe a little bit too comfortable in the Bay Area's culture, so much so that essentially only Christians know you're a Christian, but your non-believing friends don't know that there's anything different about you. And so faithful presence for you is going to be hard because other people don't even know you follow Jesus. For others of you, however, your struggle 
uh, is with the presence part of faithful presence. Uh, the problem isn't that you're too comfortable in the culture. It's that you're too afraid of the culture, maybe even a little bit against the culture. And so you withdraw it. You're not present in it at all. And so people can tell that you're different, but the walls that you've put up are so high that there's no chance of meaningful relationship with non-Christians. So faithful presence is going to be hard for you because there's no entry point for impacting those around you. We're called to be both faithful and present. Look, let me, uh, let me wrap up by pointing out that we are in a critical moment in the life of this church. We have, some, uh, we have to answer some really important questions, existential questions, You know, who are we as a church? Why should we even exist? What role is God calling us to play in the mission of God's people here in this corner of the bay? You know, how should our love of truth, our love of shalom, our joy, our feasting, how how should those be present both within these walls but also outside these walls? How do we fit into God's mission to see people from every nation join his people, convert, come to faith? You know, how do we fit into God's mission to bring about shalom in this world, to bring a a little bit more of God's kingdom from heaven to earth, you know, to do our vocations with the city of God in view, to promote human flourishing and justice and mercy. You know, the church is God's method for his internal mission to bring people to himself, to redeem and restore all things. And we have a role to play in that. We can't do everything. We're just one local church. But we also can't do nothing. And so who are you? New life. What is God calling you to do here? How should we be faithfully present where God has called us? These questions and others like it are what you will need to begin answering as we step into this pastor search season. And so let me just emphasize again the importance of next week's congregational meeting. Immediately following the worship service, I encourage you to make every effort to be there. And I'm actually, I'm actually not going to be at that meeting. I'm going to lead the worship service, and I'm going to head out. Because these are questions that you as a congregation need to answer. You need to work toward a specific vision and mission for this church and this geographic location in this year and in the years to come that you can buy into corporately. You know, Ephesians 4, 11 through 12 says that Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers not to do the work of ministry all by themselves, but to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to equip the saints to build up the body of Christ. Pastors work for you to help you do the work of ministry that God has called you to do. So you need a pastor who will equip you to do what you're called to do. What work of ministry is God calling New Life to do? What is he calling you individually to do? What is he calling us corporately to do? You know, what vision and mission can you personally commit yourself to as part of the mission of all of God's people? That's not a question that I can answer for you. That's a question you're going to have to answer together. You know, if a congregation doesn't have a personal buy-in to a vision and mission, then it doesn't matter who's pastoring. It's probably not going to go very far. But if a congregation does have personal buy-in to a vision and mission, and a pastor says, yeah, I can help equip you to do that, then some pretty amazing things could happen. You know, Dr. Kim, when he was here in November, 
He said that he believed there's still work that God wants to do through this church. And I believe that there's still work that God wants to do through this church. And so the question then is, do you? Do you believe God still has work he wants to do through this church? You should believe that. You are a people of truth and shalom, a people of feasting and a people with a mission for more people to join us in Christ, ultimately in truth, shalom, and feasting. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you and thank you for your grace and mercy toward us, that you save us from our sin, that you lift us out of slavery before you ask us to do anything. But Father, we admit that there are things you ask us and command us that we're hesitant to take up, that we're slow to do, that we're fearful to do. We pray, Father, that your grace would comfort us, that the good you've promised to do to us would cast away fear, and that we would respond to your grace by living in truth and peace, by enjoying the feasts you want to give us, and by participating in your mission. We pray this all in your son's name, Lord. Amen.